This work is not the sexy work uh, oftentimes that we think of that trustees do. So what is the, the board's role in goal setting? Um, we've seen over the last five years at Alamo that students are, have formed bonds with their academic advisor. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. This is the opening general session from ACCT's annual Congress in New York. It features a panel moderated by Josh Weiner, founder and executive director of the College Excellence Program at the Aspen Institute, Dr. Pam Edinger, president of Bunker Hill Community College, Dr. Mike Flores, chancellor of the Alamo Colleges District, Darian Pollard, president of Montgomery County Community College, and Madeline Pumariega, chancellor of the Florida College System, discussing how boards can empower 21st century leaders. Well. Thank you. So this is truly an all-star group. I'm delighted. Thank you, Noah, uh, for allowing me to ask a few questions of these folks. Um, Pam, to my right, is not just a leader of a great community college, but is the chair of Achieving the Dream, a national leader uh, in, in that respect. Mike Flores, three weeks on the job, is that right? Yes, three uh, weeks. Um, or for, it will be a month on Friday. One month on Friday. I'm not counting them. Counting the minutes. <laughs> for the Alamo District, but, but more importantly, spent six years as the president of Palo Alto, one of the finalists for the Aspen Prize. Uh, Madeline Permariega uh, has been at institutions at Miami-Dade and other institutions and uh, is the chancellor of a system that has two Aspen Prize winners. Uh, and then finally, uh, Darian Pollard, who has uh, been recognized for her great work. Um, through a Carnegie Award this last year as one of only seven presidents in the country across all of higher ed for ac an academic leadership award. So this really is a phenomenal group. And I, I really want to start because each of you has been doing scaled and sustainable work in student success. And it really is, is unique work. And I wanted to start with you, Pam, to talk a little bit about one thing that you're proudest of. We've talked a little bit about your work uh, uh, with part-time students. So, so say a little bit about what you've been working on and are proudest of uh, at sure. Bunker Hill in terms of student success. Um, I, I think our work with part-time students or the concept of part-time students is in response to the changing demographics that is moving across our nation at community colleges. Um, the average age on my, on my campus is 27, and I'm assuming that is true for a lot of our um, colleges in the audience. And three out of four of my students work, and many of them full-time. And therefore, they couldn't very well be full-time students. And three out of five are parents. So what we're finding is that the, the idea of their part being part-time students is really a factor of who they are and how they conduct their lives. Education is not at the center of their lives, as much as we think that we're all great colleges. The center of their lives are their family, their children, making a living and taking care of their extended family a lot of times. So they are um, very much the future. And taking care of them and make sure that they complete and they have what they need um, is, is really the future of our work. All of my students, I would say almost all of my students, are one small disasters away from dropping out. So if we're really looking at what makes students successful, you gotta acknowledge those realities and look at your policies and your practices and see what is standing in the way. I really appreciate that. I think often we're driven by the national data which only cover first uh, sort of full-time students and we're driven by those numbers and I really appreciate that you and your board have 
really paid attention to these students who are often hidden from the public eye um, to truly, really work to help them. Mike, talk a little bit about the uh, work at Palo Alto uh, that you've been doing in Guided Pathways, math reform. Um, say a little bit about the Guided Pathways movement and how it, it, what, what it looks like at, at uh, the Alamo Colleges, if you would. Sure, Al. Um, one of the things I think is, a, which is a key mantra for our, our board that they've articulated in their past 10 years and really having an ethos of two things, that student success is paramount, and then the other is things have to be at scale. So one of the first pieces was actually ensuring that we would connect students to an academic advisor. So we have 150 advisors at Palo Alto and all five of the Alamo colleges. It's a ratio of one advisor to 350 students. Um, they're able to connect with them at important milestones. And that was a foundational element that then allowed us to go to scale and setting up guided pathways, uh, which we call Alamo Institutes, a meta-major framework that allows students actually to determine if they are a pre-major in one discipline, what that will look like dependent upon one of 20 different universities that they're going to transfer to. So it is a very individualized pathway for each of our students. We see a proof point already on a couple of things. One is with regard to mathematics. 40% of our students enter having to take developmental math or English. In 2010, only 13% um, of students completed the first year passing college algebra. Uh, in 2016, that was 37%. Mm. In developmental mathematics, it was, um, or in English, it was 37% in 2010. 2016, after the first year, we have 62% of our students are able, to, are able to pass and succeed in the first college-level English course. So it really is ensuring that students can connect with an academic advisor and then bringing that to scale with our guided pathways work. And I think the, um, the work that's being done to connect students, we're in New York City, so a shout out to the Community College Research Center, which has shown that when students connect to purpose early on, they're much more likely to complete. And that work to try to get advisors uh, to help students get on that pathway and through has been really phenomenal. I'm gonna jump over to you, Darian, uh, to talk about uh, your work and then come back, Madeline, because you're thinking at a system level, come back to you. But Darian, talk a little bit about your notion of radical inclusion mm -hmm. and the work that you've done, which is really so impressive, uh, to try to ensure that every student who comes to Montgomery has a chance to succeed, the best chance to succeed. Thank you, Josh. You know, Montgomery College has a, a unique perspective in that we are a gloriously diverse institution. Uh, we have students from over 160 countries. 72% of our students identify as non-white. And as a result of that, we have a long history and a deep legacy of celebrating the diversity of our community. And, and in ways that I find to be very profound, it's a part, a visceral level of who we are as an organization. However, what we also recognize is how do we start to use uh, this joy that we have about who we are to elevate a platform around student success? Uh, there are lots of models that uh, you've even talked about here in terms of pathways work. Uh, there are you know, umpteen different strategies. For us, we use this idea of radical inclusion. How do we as an organization rise up intentionally to meet every student where they are and create an organization where our practices, policies, uh, how we do the work 
recognizes the lived experiences of our students and employees in such a way to produce equitable outcomes for students. Uh, we ground that around this work of saying, how do we as an organization redefine and reshape who we are in such a way to deliberately engage every student and meet them where they are? Not the students that we had, not the students that we think we're going to have, but the students we have right now within our organization, and to do that gloriously, and to do that in a way that we empower employees to be able to do that work, but also empower students to self-advocate for the work that they need to do. Um, so one of the things I think has been important for us is understanding our data and unpacking that, disaggregating it, something that I know many organizations are doing across the, uh, uh, the nation, being agile and responding to that data, understanding what it is we have to do to, to respond to that. Um, we are, I'd like to say, reforming almost every student interaction that we have, whether it be from onboarding to how students experience it from the moment they leave our organization, and even afterwards, building strong alumni who become uh, caretakers of the organization as well. And then also with our employees, helping them understand that each and every employee has a distinctive role in a student success agenda. Nobody gets to tap out when it gets uncomfortable. Because for us, we recognize that we are best at growing when we honor our vulnerability as an organization and reposition ourselves. And our outcomes speak to that. I was looking at a few this, this morning. Since 2013, when we actually initiated this work, our fall to summer retention has increased from 70 to, excuse me, fall to spring retention has increased from 70 to 80 percent. Our fall to fall retention has increased almost about 8 percent in that same period, one of the highest of record for us. Our pass rates for white, black, uh, Hawaiian Pacific Islanders, Hispanic students, international and white students has increased significantly. Our fall to fall retention which I think is interesting for me, is the highest on record that we have. And certainly our three-year graduation and transfer rates have increased to 46%, which is up 5% uh, over our FY17. So there's a lot of work that's still left to be done in this space. But for us, taking something that we had great pride in as an organization and then using that to motivate us to really do the next level of work, I think has been transformational within our organization. Thank you. You can see the, the focus on, on the really different strategies, but they're all aligned to this idea of making sure that we're making progress for students, mm -hmm. measuring that, unpacking that, understanding not just the students who are succeeding, but those who may not be. Mm -hmm. Madeline, you've been leading really phenomenal work in the state of Florida to try to get data before folks and really have a focus on on metrics, and, and as somebody who has a bird's eye view across 28 institutions, talk a little bit about your work on measurement and data and what role that plays in enabling higher levels of student success. So in Florida, we implemented um, performance-based funding like many other states, and we really focused on four metrics. And I think that while having various metrics is effective sometimes, I think just being laser focused on what's retention look like? What's retention among part-time students? Um, you know, breaking that data down and disaggregating it into students of color, Hispanics, black students, um, white students, at the same time looking at who's coming into developmental education and who's not coming into DevEd. How are we doing those early reach out programs? 
The second um, was around retention. How did we look at retention measures exactly within those metrics as well? Another area was job placement and continuing education. And so we know of the 115,000 students that we graduated last year, about 51% go on to our universities to pursue a baccalaureate degree. Um, some stay within our colleges, but we looked at that data as well, and we said, so are our younger students, 18 to 24-year-olds, are they staying with us for a baccalaureate, or are they moving on? We found they're moving on. Their grade point average at par or better than the native university students. So we know the baccalaureate students that do stay with us, average age 31, unpacking that kind of data, even around who's transferring, where are they transferring to, and then if they're, they're working, where are they working? And so, like most of your institutions, nine out of 10 students were working right in their community. And that's critical as we look for additional funding and aligning to workforce needs. And then the fourth component was earnings. And this one was a tough one. There's a lot of pushback, and that was, how are you gonna determine earnings? And we looked and we said, if a student graduated a year after their graduation, they're making 100% above entry level wages in your community of someone who did not go to college. Because we've got to continue to make the case that there's an investment in your time and in resources that's going to have an output of earnings, particularly when we're serving majority Pell students, first generation students. They need to see, as much as we would love to say they come in search of truth and knowledge, they don't. They come to us in search of an education that gets them into a job, a higher paying job, and how do we build that pathway? And so we looked at that, we looked at completion, and one of the areas we, um, because of the trend of part-time students, we looked at 150%, and then we looked at 200% completion rates um, among the students. And after that, it drops off. So we also gave our colleges data that the 150 and 200 were the right measures uh, to be looking at because if they stayed longer than that, we didn't see the payoff. We didn't see the return, which is so important around the pathways um, work. And so when we deliver our performance funding reports to our colleges, we're giving them trend lines. We're telling them how they're doing, how they're doing against the system, and what their trend so that they can take action um, at their college around the data. And we tried to be really intentional that it wasn't a ranking system. It wasn't a competition. You earn points if you do better than yourself or if you lead in excellence points because you're at the top in terms of uh, retention and completion in the four measures. And so uh, to scale that to 28 colleges, 800,000 students, pretty diverse Florida has been, um, has been challenging, but I think for the trustees and a lot of our college presidents that are here, um, it is about being laser focused on the student, not just about access, but success. I just want to take a second to remind you that registration is now open for the National Legislative Summit. The summit will take place in Washington, D.C. from February 10th through the 13th and is a great opportunity to advocate for your institution and hear from members of U.S. Congress, leading political analysts, and other high-profile speakers about the current climate in D.C., recent elections, and legislative issues impacting community colleges. 
head over to nls.acct.org to register. There are a lot of, I think there are a lot of avenues through which you're looking at data. Pam, for you, it's been, uh, you know, some a focus on, on part-time students. There's a, a state-level mandate uh, that's come, some look at diversity, some look at math in the first year. I, I want to turn this now to the folks in the room, right? These are trustees, and they're not the ones crafting the strategy. And I'm a member of the board of my <laughs> university in my, in my uh, hometown where I live, and we've got to think about legal matters and facilities and protecting <laughs> the reputation of the college and making sure that we can go to the mayor and get, you know, help get the money that the college needs. Why should, what, what is the importance of a board focusing on student success? <laughs> In the face of all of that, why, from your perspective as leaders, does it matter whether a board focuses its time on student success and looking at the measures of student success? Darianne, do you want to start? That's the work. <laughs> uh, I, I, I find myself uh, great, very grateful, and I don't say this because they're here, I say it everywhere I can. Uh, I feel, feel very privileged to work for the board that I do, uh, who understands uh, two things. I think I used the phrase yesterday of uh, being a raw courage and a little bit of good trouble, as John Lewis calls it, because the idea that this work is not the sexy work uh, oftentimes that we think of the trustees do. Uh, they go about advocating for our institutions. They go out uh, seeking funds. They are uh, providing accountability measures to the organization and being very deliberate about that fiduciary responsibility. Uh, but at the core, of what I think trustees' work is, is holding the institution accountable for the mission that it says it's going to do. And at Montgomery College, if we say our job is to empower students to change their life, to enrich the life of the community, our third line of our mission statement specifically says, and we will be accountable for our results. So therefore, it is the role of the board to hold me accountable as its only employee to make sure then that the organization and everything that we do with our strategies is done in such a way to actualize that mission while at the same time holding me accountable for that in very deliberate and thoughtful ways. And that doesn't mean uh, that they simply say, oh, good job, dearie, and go do that. Uh, we have robust conversations and they challenge, uh, they create safe places for conversations, uh, they offer deliberate actions that need to be taken, but they also honor that there's a way that these things have to be done. And therefore the board, I think, which I think becomes very powerful, becomes not only the conscience of an organization when done very well, uh, they also have the ability to be the main or the master communicators if we allow them to do that. Uh, our board put together a student success policy uh, this past year, which I was very excited about in June of this year, they actually articulated a set of goals that they have about where we will be with transfer, with graduation, and baccalaureate degree attainment. Not just recognition, if we're gonna say transfer is what we are, what are those students doing when they actually do transfer? I thought that was bold. I think it was courageous. It scares the heck out of me sometimes uh, as their president, but I also know that we're in the trenches together. So I think there is something very powerful about the relationship that a president and a, as a CEO and the board has to have in actualizing that mission that we have. Thank you. Um, others, Madeline, do you? I'd say it's, it's almost not only the social 
imperative, but it's the fiscal imperative. I think that the days that we can sit back as colleges and say our enrollment is cyclical to the economy um, isn't going to work. Really, retention among the students that you have is as critical as those that you're recruiting. And when you're building that fiscal budget, it's not coming from the states. As I think state resources continue to dwindle. If, and for Florida, there was an environment that happened, and that is that no tuition fee increases over the last almost seven years. Wow. So when you have the same exact state investment, you really have to start looking and you can't raise tuition about how do you keep the students that you have here from fall to spring and spring to, you know, to fall again. Here's what we found. We found of the students that start full time in the fall, one third are part time by the spring. At some of our institutions, that was up to 66% of the students became part-time that spring. And so many of our institutions now have looked, is it their student aid? Is it the calendar? What lends the environment that you quickly go from 12 to nine? Mm -hmm. Is it really because you had to go to work or did we make it easy for you to start going to nine credits and six credits in a healthier economy and before you know it, you're taking one class and now you're not as engaged in the um, college community. So I think for our boards, it, it just becomes a fiscal imperative on how you manage um, the financial health of the institution. Yeah, and I think what I hear you saying is it's both about retention, which translates to dollars, but also about proving value in the community so that students come back, yep. right? And, and I think that we've seen in a lot of the polling that people are questioning the value of higher ed at a time when higher ed's more valuable than ever before. So the imperative is to both retain students for the purposes of retaining the dollars, but also to get them through so that you can prove that value. I think that's really, uh, really important. Mike, um, uh, maybe we can expand this a little bit both to um, the, the importance of boards being engaged, but what metrics are the Alamo College Board, uh, does the Alamo College Board look at um, specifically, uh, and how does the boards uh, focus on student success? Uh, why is that important for your work? Um, thank you, Josh. I think one of the important things is I've only been in this role for, for one month, right? Um, so in, in looking at it, most importantly, it has really been that the board has articulated that North Star of student success. And that has been imbued throughout the organization. So as a president or a vice president or a dean, I have been able to see and my colleagues have been able to see as part of the team that student success is our business. That is our lens and framework, our way of knowing. Um, and the board has done that in various ways. They've articulated and um, codified policies. So there's one in particular, which uh, is B91. I call that our main uh, policy vitamin. So it's called the Alamo Way, and it has three foci. So it talks about student success. It says we have to be able to do things better. Um, so performance excellence. And then it talks about everybody owning that destiny, whether that's a faculty member or a student member as part of principal-centered leadership. So that policy in particular is able, through those three foci, 
to provide guidance to each and every one of us within Alamo Colleges. It's been carefully articulated by the board. One of the ways that we see that is every spring in which we all look at 11 KPIs, mm -hmm. in which uh, the district overall presents their dashboard and framework, and then we disaggregate that and drill down by specific college, all five. They look at how students are doing in specific courses, English and math. Are they doing well? Are they getting an A, B, or C? Are they completing that course? Are they moving from that term to the next term? Are they moving from one academic year to the next? And then one of the most important things is a goal that we have for the system and for each one of the five colleges on completion. So are students getting credentialed in the time that they're with us? Because that is their goal. They want that ticket to the middle class. So the board has set the policy and the vision. And then as part of leadership and the team, it is how do we effectuate that to ensure that our students are moving forward? What are those leading indicators and what are those lagging indicators? So the board has been very deliberate as a chancellor, but most importantly, I think, for all of the team within Alamo to know what we need to do. Thank you. Pam? Sometimes we talk about the board as if they're, they're monolithic and they're never changing. Um, and, and we all know that that's not true. Um, over the past year, my entire board of 11 turned over. Every single one of them. Wow. Are, now, are they appointed? Are they appointed or? They were appointed by the governor. Wow. And uh, what has been magic about that though, even, even though it feels like <laughs> a little bit like hurting good cats, um, is that those goals that we set or those metrics that we set with a prior board becomes the norm by which we learn together as a board and, and a CEO. And, and I, would, I would say to you, you know, we can tell you a lot of different strategies from this table, but it's that magic moment, right, when you're in retreat with your board chair and your board members, as a college president, and you look at the set of goals and try to learn and norm them together. That is probably the best work I have ever done with a board. We, we can all spout out the same 10 or 15 metrics. They're not different. We all measure the same thing almost. Rather, it's four years or six years as a minor difference. But it's that learning process that, that you engage the board with. Um, it's sort of like a modeling of what we do with our students. We learn with our students together. And, and that has been really valuable. So, you know, if you have metrics, go through them together. Uh, rather than saying, you know, this is never changing and it's going to be forever mm -hmm. and ever. Because um, our students change yeah. over time. Yeah, I think that's just that's such an important insight is that, the, that those goals serve as that norming for the new board members, but also the through line to new board members. I remember when I joined my board, I wanted something to hang my head on. What are our goals as a board? Similarly, we have a lot of turnover in presidencies. <laughs> and if you don't know what your goals are, it's hard to hire a president who is going to enact those goals. So I love, Pam, your focus on continuity. So let's talk a little bit about goal setting because it's an, it's an interesting dynamic where um, I have yet to be at, to, at an excellent college where the board said, here are your goals, Mr. President or Ms. President. Um, you will follow these. There is an interaction that happens between the administration and the board. So what is the, ro the board's role in goal setting? Um, so that it has things against which it can measure. Um, and and, and, and as, as presidents and 
um, leaders of the system, what is your advice to board members uh, about the relative roles of institutional leaders and the board in the goal setting process? Why does the board get engaged in that? I knew this panel was gonna get me in trouble at some point in time. <laughs> well, maybe I'm winging it a little bit. I mean, it wasn't exactly as written up. That wasn't one of the questions. <laughs> But, but I mean, it's an interesting yeah. dynamic, right? Anybody want to field that one, or should we move on to the next question? Well, <laughs> <laughs> Since I'm in trouble yeah. already, I'll start. Because yeah. I think start. everybody's touched upon it, right? Yeah. Like really. being bold. Yeah. Being bold about what is the goal and being clear about the goal. Setting the key performance indicators um, so that you know there's no surprise at the end of the year if you didn't get to the goal because you have those key performance indicators that you're getting a dashboard on potentially that says are we on target or off target. I think as a board know the variables that come into play in any one of those goals, right? So, you know, play the doomsday scenario. What's the worst that could happen and then how would it affect that goal in our community? I have two colleges who've just been devastated by a hurricane. So can you play that natural disaster out too? And yeah. what happens then in terms of that goal? But I think you're bold, you set the bold goal, you set it for all the right reasons, it sets the value of the institution, you have the key performance metrics, you hire good people, and you let them be your strategic leaders and report back on that and then provide your insights into where you have the expertise, which is what's happening outside of the college, what's happening in the community, and that's great input that you contribute as leaders into those goals or strategies. So, so here's the, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go Mike ahead, and Darian. So here's the dirty little secret, I think, in this, and I think your, your point is such a powerful one. I think the goal setting um, can be an easy process. Yeah. You sit down and you identify where you are, where you want to go, and a series of things that you think you can do to get there, and you all have agreements on that agreement. I think the dirty secret in is that is that there's not enough conversation that oftentimes occurs between a board and the president about what it's gonna to take to get there. Yeah. <clears throat> so for instance, you set a bold and audacious goal that we're going to have X percent completion, which may represent a 20% increase from where you were. And a president may tell the board, we can do that, but I need you to understand what it's gonna to take to do that. And what are going to be the unintended consequences? Uh, what are going to be the struggles we have with that? What are going to be the great opportunities we have? And let's, let's have a, a, a real understanding, because that, for me, I think is where the disconnect occurs. Uh, the disconnect, I don't think, is in actually articulating what we want to do. It's to understand what it's going to take to get there and work in partnership to develop a strategy so that when you do have a group of people walking into a board meeting to articulate their discontent and their frustration with what is happening or not happening within the organization and the big change word becomes the thing that everyone is talking about, you have to be able to understand we decided to go into this surgery together. And as a part of that, I think very sophisticated, thoughtful boards 
think about, and I've had my board say this to me, what role do you need us to take in this? Right. How do you want us to articulate this? Um, is there a way that we may not tackle this in the first six months, but by year this, we're gonna be here, and here are the steps it's gonna to take to get that. That's, a, that's where the real learning that you were talking about, Pam, is essential. So when you have that board turnover, it becomes a challenge. But when you're in that together, mm -hmm. lockstep, that to me, I think, makes a far more effective way of being able to tackle those issues. Terrific. And, yeah. and the, the other assumption is that the board and the president can get into a room and come up with a set of goals. Most of the, mo the most effective goals and measurements that we've ever had are the ones that have risen up from the faculty who are in the front lines, from our students who are joining the conversation. Um, if your goal setting is only happening in the boardroom, then you're detached from the people who are implementing your goals. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, that listening exercise and sort of parking your ego, whether it's a board ego or CEO ego at the door, yep. and truly listen to your institution. I always wondered when, when folks do interviews for presidencies, right, and they'll say to the candidate, well, tell me about your vision for the college. And I would say to them, the vision arises from the college. It does not come from the board per se or the president per se. And the board and the president is not listening to where the vision's voices are. Then you're just in a room with six people making up things. Yep. And that really is not <laughs> yes. a good thing. And Pam, you make a good point, both of you, about learning. Yes. We are learning institutions. Mm. Right. We are enterprises of learning, right? Our, our main business is to transfer knowledge and prepare someone into the world of work, right? And how many of your goals are focused on the teaching and learning process? And it's, it's easy to focus on the four about what's your retention, what's your completion, and what's your earnings, and how many are going on. But how many are focused on what the core of what your mission is in terms of what we're delivering is actually a teaching learning process. And I would just say that in the era of performance and the era of quick metrics, um, I think it's critical to focus on the faculty and focus on the teaching and learning process that come as a partnership between the student and their faculty. When that happens, that's the magic. That's the magic. Because the truth is, for every student that I talked to who changed their life wasn't the board member, the president, the chancellor. It was a faculty member right. that inspired them to come back next term, that called them when they missed class. And, and so whatever we do, let's remember that piece as well. Great. Mike, you wanted to get an earlier, has it all been said? Um, I, I, as uh, Madeline was mentioning about teaching and learning, I. I have appreciated um, the past few months being involved um, in my transition phase and especially in looking at whether something is emanating from our colleagues in the classroom or an academic advisor. Um, how do you capture that? I think it is that sense making, those conversations that you have with your colleagues, with students, the conversations um, that I've really come to appreciate with the board. So it may not be the outcomes, but it, there's a robust and richness in the process. And it really is that sense-making process of looking through, discussing, challenging, taking a deeper dive, uh, whether that is a conversation between the CEO and the board or amongst colleagues together. 
um, at the institution. Great. So as a board member, I'm taking a few things. One is I need to know where the goals came from. Did they involve? <laughs> did they involve? Who, who was involved in the setting of them? Mm -hmm. right. I need to understand what the action is that's going to be taken and what the challenges are so that I can be prepared for that. And then at the end, Madeline, I don't want to lose your comment about the hurricanes. At the end of the year, this isn't a gotcha process. This isn't to say, you didn't meet the goals, we're going to punish the college, or it's why didn't we meet the goals? And understand, is that a hurricane? Is that a, was there a strike? Uh, what happened here? That, and how do we now set goals and understand moving for the next year uh, what it is that we should be focused on and what the strategy is for moving there? A really rich conversation. Thank you. Um, so policy. It's often said that the board sets policy um, and the college uh, executes it. Um, that's probably uh, not quite as clean as all that. Um, but, but what is one policy that um, perhaps a board has adopted that you think has been really meaningful at your college for advancing student success? What is the board's role? And maybe express that in an example of a policy that's been really meaningful uh, in your work. Mike? Somebody. Yeah. Um, I, I would have to say I'd go back to that piece of connection. We uh, mentioned the students being able to form that bond and affinity with a faculty member. Um, we've seen over the last five years at Alamo that students are, have formed bonds with their academic advisor. So the board, as part of um, policy, uh, looked at student success, and then uh, we developed, then as a team, uh, plan to be able to do that. They, utilizing uh, fiduciary responsibility, reallocated existing dollars for us to stand up an academic advising system at scale across all five colleges and our regional centers in which we now have over 150 academic advisors um, with touch points, with student learning outcomes, because it isn't transactional when the schedule suddenly comes out. It's a matter of having those intentional conversations with the students to see where, what they, how they're doing and where they'd like to go. So I think that policy and the policies and the ethos that the board has set related to student success is important. And then entrusting us with being able to come back with recommendations that they're looking at in a resource neutral or perhaps declining resource base how can we effectively ensure that we can stand up this system? And we see now that students talk about not only a faculty bond that they formed, but actually their academic advisor. So walking around campus, it is, and your academic advisor is, my academic advisor is Maria. And Miss Garcia was telling me about this trip we're gonna to take to our regional state institution. Mm. But if I wanna transfer an engineering to the tier one institution, then I know my degree plan's a little different. Um, and I'm gonna go see her in the next hour and she's gonna help me fill out my scholarship application. So I think it is the board setting that ethos of student success, us being able to develop a framework and then you can see it on a daily basis with individual students talking about the connection that they formed with not only a faculty member, but actually the common thread for many of them early on is their academic advisor.
I just want to take a second to remind you that registration is now open for the National Legislative Summit. The summit will take place in Washington, D.C. from February 10th through the 13th and is a great opportunity to advocate for your institution and hear from members of U.S. Congress, leading political analysts, and other high-profile speakers about the current climate in D.C., recent elections, and legislative issues impacting community colleges. Head over to nls.acct.org to register. I, I just want to highlight one thing that you said, which is that that strategy, which Darian, you were referring, how are we going to get to these goals? The strategy has budget implications. Yes. And one of the other roles for a board is to approve the budget. So now if you understand that this is going to be beefing up advising, well, there are budget implications there. And, and the, the board then has an opportunity to read the budget with that lens of that strategy. So I, I just wanted to, to highlight that uh, as a board member. I, I, that, that's a really important connection for us to make. Others that wanted to uh, identify a policy that has been really meaningful for your institution, Pam, and then? So, so in our institution, um, we, we share five big goals. And those goals are our proxy for, for policy or for policy language. Um, what we've started doing, and this is like the third time we've done it, uh, so I'll let you know what happens next year, is that at every board meeting, we will identify a goal and a strategy and an initiative that supports it and will report back on it. So by the end of the year, after a number of repetition, the board would have gotten a really deep look at what we're actually implementing for that policy or that goal so that there's, there, there's a continuity of conversation and there's a learning conversation that goes on. And it also allows us to bring the implementers to the table, whether they be students or faculty or um, administrators who would do the presentation. So there is an exchange, but there's also a nice boundary, right, uh, between the policymakers and the implementers, but they, they're in the same room. So hopefully that will continue and I'll let you know what happens. Well, as a board member, you know, I have a full-time job, I have kids and I like to go to a ball game every once in a while. I think that notion of repetition, bringing the same data before the board over and over is hugely important and recognizes the busy lives all of you have Right? Um, um, we all get the same paycheck, I assume, right? It's not a big one. It's not any. Um, uh, we're doing this because we believe <laughs> in the power of community colleges to transform lives. Uh, but that also means that we're only doing it with a part of our time. So I really appreciate that focus on, yeah. on repetition. Other, other reflections on the yeah, policy? Yeah, I'd offer just a couple. One is that our board recently, <clears throat> maybe three years ago, passed a student success policy. And, and I think that is very powerful because if you looked at the policy manual for the Board of Trustees, uh, there are lengthy chapters on human resources, lengthy chapters on fiscal uh, matters, lengthy chapters on adjudication of personnel issues. Uh, what was absent, I think, was the boy, board's voice around student success. And I think that was a particularly powerful one. We certainly, uh, the uh, chair of our academic and educational excellence committee at that time really advocated and we looked at a number of policies and they married several themes. And one of the things I think that policies can do, they can represent the maturation of an organization and they reflect your thinking. That's why policies should not stay the same for decades. They should reflect as living organizations who we are at that time. So that policy, I think, has been very pivotal in helping us to ground this other work that we're doing in student success. And it actually became the grounding for our work on radical inclusion. 
The other thing that I would offer is uh, our board uh, is very thoughtful, my board, about when it speaks. Uh, it recognizes the potency of the board's voice. And certainly in board policy is important to, to be able to do that. But I can count on one hand the number of times in the nine years I've been in Montgomery College, eight and a half, where they have articulated a statement by the board. And what I think is important, those statements have been affirmations of the values of the board and the institution. And I looked at this just the other day. Um, they did a statement where they did the affirmation of Montgomery College values. We were seeing the rise of um, hate and the rise of our inability to communicate about difference. Rather than taking a statement about those times, they actually lifted up the values of the college. And they say, this is an affirmation of the values of the college. I thought that was very powerful. They did a statement to support the Maryland Dream Act. When there was legislation being proposed, the board actually said, we want to use the power of our voice to lend and lift that up. I thought that was powerful. They also did, and not so long after I arrived, it was a national movement on making it better and to talk about the environment for LGBT students and to understand what it means to be different on a college campus and to use the college. So this to me goes back to my statement about understanding the values that were already there at the college and using those to lift them up and then to create a framework for the student success work that we've done. And then the last statement that the board did was the establishment of a set of student success goals. So we know who we are as an organization. We want to live those values out loud. Oh, and by the way, we're holding you accountable to make sure that every student who steps in here, their lived experiences are reflected in policy practice and procedure, and that at the end of the day, those students get to walk across the stage as well, not just the ones that uh, uh, everyone expected to walk across the stage. That to me, I think, is, is the potency of what boards and their policy and their public voice can do both internally and externally. Great. Madeline, you'll get the last word. We're about a minute. Yeah. And I would say alignment. Yes. What often, and everyone has said just really good stuff, but then you've got to go three levels deep into your policies. Sometimes they're misaligned to the big goal. You have a student success agenda, but you find that your admissions policies mm -hmm. aren't aligned mm -hmm. to it. You say that you're gonna be accessible and affordable, but your financial aid policies aren't aligned to it. You say you're gonna be bold and audacious, but you haven't put $1 of investment towards getting to be bold and audacious. And so I would just say alignment, and that requires real care and attention to detail about here are, here's our strategic plan and how does, our, how does our vision and our strategic plan align to the goals that we're setting and then how are the policies that we've passed over time, over 50 years, how do those policies align to where we wanna go? And that's a nice role of the board to do because you can eliminate some of the barriers that someone in a staff position is facing every day and doesn't realize they might have the voice to bring it forward. And so I would just say alignment of all of that. Fantastic. Well, um, join me in thanking a terrific panel. You can see why they've earned this recognition. Thank you for listening to the fifth episode of season two of In the Know with ACCT. 
Be sure to subscribe so you're notified when we release the next episode. We'll see you next week.